Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 30th, 2018, and this is show number 699. And you know what that means? That means next week is episode 700. Now, this is kind of like watching your odometer go over 100,000 miles or watching the first company to go over $1 trillion. It's fun to watch, but it doesn't really have any deep significance. But it'd be fun to kind of like high-five everybody next week. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was Matthias Keller, who's a gentleman I met on Patrick Beja's Phileas Club when we were both guests on an episode recently, episode number 114, entitled The Social Media Sickness. Anyway, uh, while we were chatting, Matthias mentioned that he's on Mastodon, which is a new-ish social network. I've been trying to figure Mastodon out, and I hadn't yet cracked the code, so I asked Matthias if he could come on Chit Chat Across the Pond and explain to us exactly how it works, why he thinks it's so useful and fun. Um, after the fact, I would say that both of us agreed that he tried really hard to explain it to me and how to get in and how to do it, but I'm not sure I completely understand it yet. Anyway, it's a fun episode because he's a really fun guy and, uh, we enjoyed ourselves. He's a nice German gentleman. And, uh, if you'd like to go check it out, you can look it up in your podcatcher of choice at Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. And of course, you can find it on podfeet.com. Steve Davidson wrote up a terrific story over in our Google Plus community at podfeet.com slash Google Plus, and I liked it so much, I asked him whether he would do a guest uh, reading, basically, of what he wrote up for us. He did, and I got to warn you, um, it's it's a little rough on the audio, not too bad, but he was in a hotel room recording on his phone because this guy travels like 18 weeks out of 16. Anyway, I begged him to do it, so he did his best, and um, I think it's a great story, and it's wonderful, and you're going to love it, So, uh, but I just he wanted me to give you a warning about the audio. I think it sounds fine. A Tale of Two MacBooks. It was the worst of times. It is the best of times. In early April, my well-cared-for mid-2015 MacBook Pro began to fail badly. I saw frequent crashes, kernel panics linked to the GPU, the internal fans made a horrible grinding, groaning sound, and my backups started reporting errors. This MacBook Pro, my only computer, had served me with honor for over seven years, almost eight, and got a new lease on life three years prior when I replaced the hard disk drive with an SSD. As I reported to the NoSilicast Google Plus community, see link in the show notes, I tend to keep things that work well for me around for many years. For example, my car is a 1994 Honda Accord, which still gets 28 miles per gallon. I like to buy with an eye for the future, and I would be very unhappy if I bought a new MacBook Pro just ahead of a big announcement or of new features and a new generation of MacBook Pros that would potentially be announced at Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference that was less than two months away. So I asked the castaways, is this a good time to buy? The feedback was great, and if I thought I could hold out for a while longer, I would have. Then George from Tulsa mentioned that he saw refurbished Mac Minis that were available for a decent price on Apple's site. I decided after three crashes that next day, I could not hold out for two more months. Plus, the idea of having a small spare computer around was appealing. More on this later. So I bought the refurbished 2014 Mini. I have never done nuke and pave, as Allison likes to call them, ever. Going back to the dawn of Mac OS X, I have used the Migration Assistant or its predecessors to transition to every new Mac I've owned. My long-term plan was to start fresh, 
with a new Concave with my new eventual MacBook Pro while having my old one side by side to act as a template. Since that was not to be in this situation, I wanted to minimize the changes with the Mini by booting my near-death MacBook Pro in target disk mode so that it acts as an external drive and having the Mini boot and run exclusively from the corpse of the MacBook Pro by feeding one of the Thunderbolt ports via FireWire 800 through an adapter. Since the use of the Mini was a temporary arrangement, I didn't want to invest in a lot of new equipment. So I used a keyboard from my father's long-retired Strawberry iMac, circa 1999, and an old Supermouse, you know, the one with a tiny trackball, and connected the HDMI output of the Mini to a small TV using the stand my MacBook Pro used to occupy. There's an image in the show notes. It was an odd mixture of semi-new, old, and really old. It all seemed like a good idea at the time. Then this Franken-Mini began to freeze when under heavy load. I suspected that the freezes were due to the logic board issues on the MacBook Pro, therefore impacting target disk mode. So I performed the surgery that I had been hoping to avoid and extracted the SSD from MacBook Pro and popped it into my drive toaster, a newer tech Voyager Q, which I connected to the Mini via USB 3. It was noticeably faster after that. But my enthusiasm was not sustained. I left it running overnight, and the next morning I discovered that it shut down abruptly around 3 a.m. according to the system log, with no obvious cause. The next day, when I was moving some larger files, the machine froze again. The mouse pointer didn't move, the clock didn't increment, and the keyboard was unresponsive. After a bit of debugging and log archaeology, I determined that some kind of bus contention or bus lockup was the cause of the freezes. I tried different USB ports, there are four to choose from, but that made no difference at all. So, continuing the process of reducing the number of uncontrolled variables, I decided to eliminate the external drive and used Apple's Migration Assistant to move the contents of the now bare SSD to the Mac Mini's internal hard disk drive, following Apple's procedure precisely for doing so. Afterward, the Mac Mini was painfully slow. I mean, like, launch Safari go get a cup of coffee, return, go back for cream, and maybe Safari's dock icon would have stopped bouncing, and the application might actually be running by the time you come back. After much more fruitless debugging and log archaeology, I finally came to the conclusion that there was something beyond repair in the MacBook Pro's solid-state drive that I would not be able to find without spending a heck of a lot more time searching. It was time to cut my losses and bite the bullet. So, should I really do a new compave? Not quite. Instead, I decided to do a clean install of the Mac OS and applications, but I would use Migration Assistant to move my user accounts to the new Mini. This is especially important because I wanted to preserve decades' worth of carefully crafted application settings and preferences. So using OneNote, my go-to replacement for Evernote, I created a checklist of applications that would have a place on the new machine and bin them into three categories. Essential, which meant install immediately, things like LastPass, default folder, and iStat menus. Crucial, if that was the second wave, and included things like Bartender, Carbon Copy Cloner, and Office 365. Important, that means do soon, and that included things like TeamViewer, Wonderlist, and OneNote. And useful, that's the do when I need, which really at this point means only a handful of those applications have actually been installed. 
I also kept a checklist of login items, and that turned out to be a good plan. Gradually, the mini got to be my computer again, instead of being an alien entity that only pretended to be my computer. It was not without some hiccups. First of all, I had to ditch CrashPlan Pro in favor of Backblaze, something I was planning to do next year when my big discount on CrashPlan Pro ran out. Secondly, there were a lot of passwords that are kept in the system keychain. Uh, for example, Time Machine backup passwords are stored there, and I didn't want to lose my file system history. So that password needed to be retrieved, and fortunately, I kept them as secret, secure notes in LastPass. It's a good thing I am fastidious about such things. There were a number of other things that needed to be addressed, many more to list, but none were insurmountable. So now my mini was mine, but it was a desktop system. And that lack of mobility was a problem for me. I haven't used a desktop system since the Macintosh Quadra 900. Kids, ask your parents about that 1992 model. So I needed to find a way to be mobile. My solution? I bought a keyboard case for my iPad Air 2, the Belkin Ultimate Lite. It's a great keyboard, by the way. And with iCloud documents and some dock and slide over ninja moves, I had a working capability. It wasn't ideal, but it was good enough. And now I can uh, relate to that kid in the Apple's What's a computer TV commercial? When the new MacBook Pros came out, it was decision time. And even though I had been using a 15-inch PowerBook MacBook Pro for a very long time, and before that it was a PowerBook Duo, again, kids, ask your parents, I decided to get a brand new 13-inch MacBook Pro, the one with the touch bar and the four USB-C ports, and then I tricked it out with upgrades such as processor, memory, and drive. I used Apple's Migration Assistant to do a full clone of the Mini to the MacBook Pro, which went smooth as silk. And this new MacBook Pro is wonderful. The difference in speed and responsiveness is astounding, and I'm sure I will love this machine until I replace it in 2025. Well, maybe I won't wait seven years till the next one. And what are the Mini? I had it hooked up to the big TV in the family room, uh, effectively using it as a headless spare, because I can remote in from the new MacBook Pro. But I just read that Mac OS Mojave requires an iMac 2012 or later. My wife loves her mid-2009 iMac. Yep, she keeps things a long time, too. Kind of lucky for me. And with Mojave coming, her iMac would have to be replaced. She's not in favor of buying a new iMac on the heels of spending $3,000 on a new MacBook Pro. And she's not a tech person. So my plan is to extract the SSD I installed in her iMac last year and transplant that into the Mini. I'll buy a high-quality 19-inch monitor for her, and she can keep her Apple wireless keyboard and magic mouse. And when Mojave hits, she'll be ready. See, Allison, I told you this story is going to have a happy ending. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I love that story. That has just got, it's got twists and turns, and you don't know where it's going to end up. It was fantastic. So, plus, you ended up with two new pieces of hardware. And uh, last I heard, George from Tulsa had even more ideas for you, so it's going to be fun. Well, one of the great things about being a tech blogger and podcaster is that just about anything I ever think is interesting, I have fully documented. If I can't remember how to do some complex technical task and I've ever accomplished it before, there's a blog post about it that I've written. Half the time I forget what I've done and that I've actually done it before, and I do a search to find out how to do something and I find my own posts. That's awesome and embarrassing at the same time. Well, back in October of 2016, I did a nuke and pave, also known as a clean install, on my Mac, and I documented the major steps in a blog post. That nuke and save was forced because after a hardware repair of my 2013 MacBook Pro, it came back with an empty hard disk, so I had no choice. Well, this time, I've decided to do it on purpose. 
My 2016 MacBook Pro, which received that clean install two years ago, is kind of starting to struggle, and I know it's because of all the cruft that builds up over time. I preach a new compave every single year, but like everyone else, the task is daunting, so I do put it off, even though I know the payoff is huge. Let me explain what pushed me over the edge. Well, you may think I'm bonkers jumping into a new operating system within days of its release for my production machine, but I'm not as nutty as I may sound. When I bought the new MacBook Pro in 2016, I kept my 2013 MacBook Pro around for just this kind of situation. I knew I could run the new OS on the older Mac and test out my mission-critical software before jumping to Mojave on my production machine. I started by creating a numbers spreadsheet with priority 1, 2, and 3 apps listed, and I found definitive answers on Mojave compatibility from each vendor wherever I could. For the less critical apps, I trusted my own testing. But here's why I thought it was really time to do the new Compave. As I was doing this testing on my 5-year-old MacBook Pro, I discovered that Apple Photos was way, 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 way faster on that old machine than it is on my 2016 MacBook Pro. I mean, come on, that just ain't right. I wasn't sure what the root cause was, but I looked at that darn beach ball constantly. I'd be doing the most trivial operations, like deleting an image. It could be like a minute or longer some days. So, on Tuesday which is the day after Mojave came out, Steve and I tested the live show, which strains my Mac the most, and Mojave caused me no problems at all on that older Mac. On Tuesday night, I decided to rip the Band-Aid off and do that clean install on my production Mac that I've been promising myself I would do when I had time. The good news is that in October of 2016, as I mentioned, I documented the critical and tricky bits of my clean install process. There are so many odd little things to remember, like installing Homebrew from the command line so I can install the command line apps that make my homemade ID3 editor function. Or where was it I got the Century Gothic font that I'm so fond of? Spoiler, it comes with Microsoft Office. I haven't installed Microsoft Office yet in my clean install, so I'm using Lato font until then. It's pretty cool, too. Well, the other great thing I discovered in rereading my blog post from 20, uh, 2016, and which had completely slipped my mind, was that I had put all of the steps I took into a wonder list. Not only that, one of those entries said install apps, and within that were subtasks with each and every application I had installed back then. Now, it took me a bit of time to cross-reference my current list of mission-critical apps against those I'd recorded in 2016, but that was a darn sight easier than starting from scratch. I thought it might be fun to document the metrics I covered in 2016 as well. In 2016, I said that I started with 242 apps before the clean install and had only 80 right afterwards. This time, I started with 224 apps. It's kind of interesting that I started with only 18 fewer apps than I did before. The last time I did this, my library folder went from 136 gigabytes to 12 gigabytes after the clean install. However, in the meantime, I've been running an app called Clean Drive from within the $20 per year Parallels toolbox that I reviewed a while back, and it regularly tells me when things like cache files are stacking up. So my library folder was only 12 gigabytes before the clean install. I tell you, it almost feels like I was running a clean machine, except for those beach balls over in, uh, in uh, Photos. Well, my new disk is twice as big on the 2016 MacBook Pro at 2 terabytes, and I'm using 1.11 terabytes of that, or I was before the clean install. I didn't record how much I was using in 2016. I simply said that after the new compave, I was using 200 gigabytes less space. It's kind of a shame. I would have liked to have compared those numbers, too. 
Well, I've been making a bootable backup to my machine using SuperDuper for ages. I use a one terabyte SSD to run the backup. You'll notice that's smaller than my internal drive, so I have to eliminate some things in the copy script. I tested my bootable backup only to find that I had eliminated all applications from that bootable backup to make room. Not only that, somehow I managed to make a bootable backup that didn't even have system preferences. So I I booted up from that drive and I couldn't do anything. Well, I do have a time machine backup on my Drobo, but it whines all the time. It wants to start over. So that's kind of one of my last resort backups. I do have a Backblaze backup as well, but that's not a great solution for rebuilding my machine since that's all up in the cloud. I could have uh, asked them to send me all the data back, but I've got the data better locally. I have the data on that one terabyte drive. It's just not really a bootable drive. But when we did the great Drobo migration of 2017, we bought new drives for the Drobo 5N2, which, by the way, has been performing flawlessly since I last talked about it. When we did that, I actually ended up with a couple of leftover 2 terabyte 7200 RPM spinning drives. I grabbed one of those and the Wavelink USB dual bay disk caddy that I bought for Steve to use to erase the drives after they came out of the Drobo. I hooked that up to my 2016 MacBook Pro. Sure, I had to use a USB-A to USB-C dongle, but I still say that's not a bad thing because I got to choose the convenient side of my Mac to plug it in. I ran a full bootable backup via SuperDuper, but I forgot how slow spinning hard drives are. Oh my gosh, it's killing me. I started this backup before I go went to go exercise, and it ran for two hours while I was gone, and I still had to wait another hour before it was finished. That's why I use an SSD for my backup, even when it's too small to do the job properly. I tested the backup by booting up my older Mac with it, and it worked like a champ. After about a 15-minute boot-up process, I should say. 15 minutes. That's how long it takes to boot from a spinning hard drive. Did you know? Can you even remember it being that bad? How did we get anything done with these things? Well, armed with my time machine, backblaze, full bootable backup, and my data backup on the SSD from SuperDuper, it was time to nuke. Nuking machine isn't too hard. I followed online instructions to download a bootable installer of Mojave to a thumb drive first. I'm booting from the thumb drive I went into disk utility, and I told it to erase the main drive. It was a scary moment to hit erase. I pasted a picture of the screen to our Facebook group, and I said, hold me. Well, once the disk was blank, the terror part was over, because, I mean, it's too late now. It's time to get to work. I used my thumb drive to install Mojave, and of course, it was a breeze, and it took very little time. That was the easy part. The nuke was easy. Now let's talk about paving. The main tenet of a nuke and pave is not to use Migration Assistant to migrate your user accounts. I really mean I really mean that. That's a real nuke and pave. Now, using Migration Assistant is easy and painless, but it also means you're dragging over every bit of cruft you've collected from apps and services you may not even be using any longer. It sort of defeats the whole purpose of a nuke and pave. In fact, I, I listen to John and Dave on the Mac Geek Gab all the time, and they're always talking about these weird things they find on the Macs. Like uh, recently, they were talking about the uh, printer queue menu. There's a there's a button you can push when the printer queues up, and you can actually see your previous jobs. And they were saying, "Oh, look at that! I see a, a print job from you know 2014 or 2012." Well, yeah, you've got little things like that just clogging up the work. So I believe, and if you're going to do it, just do it right. So I drag over my documents and desktop. And uh, you know what? This time I also decided to let iCloud control them. I hope that doesn't go wrong. 
Anyway, everything else is done by hand. Think of it as an artisanal, handcrafted configuration. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I had this wonder list to guide me, but after a while, I realized that wasn't the right tool for the job. The big problems came in when I started adding items as I thought of them. I'd think, oh, I forgot to add this. This wasn't there last time. But with such a giant list of apps to install and tasks to accomplish, I found myself adding things without being able to easily see whether I'd already put them on the list. It was kind of hard to look things up, and Wonderlist won't alphabetize, and I had things like, you know, 75 items in a single list. Well, I was chatting with Dorothy on the elliptical about this problem, and she asked if I could export the list from Wonderlist and put it in another tool. Brilliant! Ideally, I would export from Wonderlist to a standard OPML, uh, that's the Outline Processor Markup Language file, because that, that would let me pull it into an outlining program like Cloud Outliner or a mind mapping app like iThoughts. Fortunately, Wonderlist would only export to JSON, which I'm sure someone more knowledgeable than me could convert, but I found another way. I figured out I could email the list to myself, and that just plopped the whole thing, indented for the sublist, into an email as a flat file. I copied and pasted it from the email into Cloud Outliner. Now, unfortunately, it pasted the entire list and all of the sublists into one line of the outline. I fiddled around, tried a bunch of different keystrokes, and somewhere along the line, when I wasn't paying attention, the entire list reformatted into all separate lines. Wish I could replicate how I did that, but I honestly don't know how I got that to work. Once I had it in Cloud Outliner, from there I was able to export to OPML and open it in iThoughts immediately I could get a better picture of what I had to do. I was able to start sorting things visually to really get a grasp on my priorities. I sorted the topics into two basic sections, apps to install and tasks to complete. For example, I'd have Feeder as an app to be installed, but under tasks I put download podcast feeds and connect to my blog. Under the tasks and apps to install, I created three categories for each one, mission critical, high priority, and low priority. I hope you appreciate that anything for the podcast production that couldn't be replicated with another tool was considered mission critical. Things like backup, that was only high priority. One level deeper, I created a bubble called installed for apps and task completed for the tasks. I color coded them and as I dragged completed items into them, the bubbles changed colors to match. With all of this structure created, now I could see visually how much I had left to do and how much I had accomplished. By the way, the ones that were done got to be green. With the entire mind map expanded, it was pretty daunting, but each time I finished an item and I got to drag it into the completed pile, I could see the mountain of work shrinking because I kept that bubble collapsed. Now, I know I have more time than most people since I'm retired, but the process didn't really take that long. I started on Tuesday morning with the full backup, so making that full backup that took three hours. Working on it probably three to four hours a day, by Friday morning at 10.30, I was able to record an episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. That meant all of my audio applications were installed and configured. And that meant uh, I was able to uh, upload the feed. I was able to do the blog post. Everything was working. Friday afternoon, Steve and I had tested the full live show setup, which is even more complicated. And it worked perfectly. Except right now, we're doing the live show and it didn't work at all. But it wasn't on my side. It's something wrong on Steve's side. So, And Steve's side has not gone to Mojave yet. So we have no idea why that didn't work. But we're using a, a good old-fashioned Google Hangout on air right now. Anyway, there were lots of bits and pieces left to go on Friday afternoon, including 17 low-priority applications left to install, but I can take my time on those. Now, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that my 70,528 photos are the most challenging piece of this puzzle. 
In the past, I've dragged over my entire photos library from a backup, but it takes approximately three weeks for every single photo to be checked by iCloud Photo Library to see if everything is in sync. During this three-week process, not only do you have to listen to me whine about it, but I also cannot use my photos during that time. No new photos from my phone will be updated, so there's a three-week no-joy period. A while back, an Apple senior support specialist came up with a new way to do it. If you've got a large library too, this tip will really make you happy. In the long run, of course, this is the one place I want to have all of the originals, but he suggested that I set my photos library to only use optimized images at first. My, uh, my originals were, of course, safely in the cloud. Now, iCloud Photo Library starts by downloading the most recent photos first and will continue to import new photos as you take them with your phone. Once all of the optimized images were downloaded, which took about two days instead of three weeks, then I was able to flip the switch to download originals. The photos library remains usable during this part of the process as well. One odd thing is I'm not seeing any kind of progress bar going on, so I'm a a little concerned about what's going on there, but I'm sure it's fine. I'm still optimistic that my photos library will eventually be snappy, but so far with all the work it's doing, it's a little bit slow. Gotta tell you, it better be faster after all of this work. Well, the bottom line is that a nuke and pave is a fair amount of work, requires good record keeping and a good plan, and must include many, many backups, including a bootable backup in case everything goes horribly wrong. I have to say, though, in all the times I've done this, I have never regretted the time I spent to do it right. I compare it to the shenanigans people go through trying to avoid doing a nuke and pave, and it seems like a much better path to me. In the end, we want a highly functional computer that works the way we want, but we also want it to be as fast and cruft-free as possible. I believe in the nuke and pave method, but I'm sure glad this task is behind me. Well, after all of this nuking and paving and doing all these different backups, I decided to treat myself to a 2 terabyte SSD. The one I bought did cost an absolute fortune, but it's just been so hard to not have a big enough backup drive. The first thing I did was I went over to the SMR podcast and I clicked on their Amazon affiliate link page. And that let me go in and buy that very expensive drive using their Amazon affiliate links. And that way they got the credit for it because I'm not allowed to use my own. But if you're going to buy something on Amazon, if you went to podfeet.com slash Amazon and bought the thing you wanted to get, or you clicked on any of the links in any of the episodes where I talk about devices, that would be really swell because then podfeet.com would help be supported by you. By the way, I'll put a link in the show notes to the device I bought. It is the Samsung T5 2TB SSD. I have the T3 was the one terabyte I've been using. And as much as I have banned Samsung from my life, the one thing I do buy from them is their external SSDs. Go buy yourself one and do it on the Amazon affiliate link now. Next up, we have a recording from Klaus Wolf. I think you'll really enjoy. Hello, fellow Nasilla Castaways. Do you know how much storage your Apple Watch apps are using? Well, I found out the hard way. While on a bicycle ride to Darmstadt this week, I noticed that my watch at one point had stopped showing average speed and distance. As you can imagine, I feared that I might have run into a bug with the otherwise beautiful WatchOS 5. The workout was still running, so it surely couldn't be terrible news. As I arrived at my usual stop for a cup of tea, I stopped my workout without any indication that something might be wrong. However, my activity rings didn't change. That's rather unusual, as that little 55-minute workout does totally take care of both my move and exercise ring in one go. I checked the activity app, 
but my workout was missing. As I started to dig deeper, I found out that my watch was out of memory. How could that be? As I needed to head back home, I decided to quickly uninstall some apps and change the photo sync from 100 to 25 images. That was good enough to get me home. Once back, I did look into this some more. You get a list of your apps and their storage usage by going to Watch App on your iPhone, selecting My Watch, General, and then Usage. Overcast was using nearly 750 megabytes of storage space. So maybe Overcast was partially to blame for my problem earlier. So I started to look into the Overcast settings. I must say, beautiful as the app is, the settings can be confusing. There is a lovely section labeled Advanced with an easy-to-comprehend section, Nitpicky Details, which held the answer. Autosync to watch was switched on, but I don't remember ever toggling that switch. It must be the default, and if you ask me, it's a terrible choice. I'm sure that this is an awesome feature for those Apple Watch users with LTE who leave their phone behind when going on a workout, but I'm not one of them. After I had posted this to the Nocilla Castaways Facebook page, I got some feedback from Rick Abraham, who reported Overcast using 900 megabyte of storage space on his device. Rick added that in order to fully clear the space Overcast was using on his watch, he had to uninstall it from his watch and then reinstall it. That's not my experience, but it might be useful info for you. Very long story short, maybe it's time for you to double-check what Apple Watch apps you really want and need on your watch, and just maybe which of these are using a silly amount of storage. Well, after Klaus wrote this up for us, Marco Arment, the developer of Overcast, posted on Twitter that he changed this default behavior. In update 5.0.2, amongst other improvements, he added a feature called Selective Watch Auto Sync. He also changed the default from all podcasts down to 10. Klaus suggested I not post his article and not play his audio, but he highlights something that could bite any of us from other applications. After reading what had happened to him, I checked the storage on my Apple Watch, and I'd never even thought to check that before, and I discovered that Apple Podcasts was using up 1.2 gigabytes on my watch. I don't even use Apple Podcasts. I only subscribe to my own shows to make sure they were feeding properly, but that's about it. I don't know how it ended up chewing up that much space, since when I checked on my phone, there was only one episode in each feed. Anyway, I think this was a great tip, and thank you very much to Klaus for bringing it to us. Well, it's been five days since Mojave came out, and I've run across the oddest bug. Yesterday, a few times, I noticed the caps lock warning icon when I went to enter a password. You know, the one that tells you, hey, you got to turn off caps lock, that's why your password isn't look working? Well, when I saw it, I looked at my keyboard, and the green light was not on on my uh, my caps lock. But I tapped the caps lock a few times till the indicator disappeared, entered my password, and I went on with my day. But this morning, on Sunday, every single thing I typed was in all caps. Now, I unjustly accused the MacBook Pro keyboard that everyone likes to mock. I've had stuck keys before, but usually it's intermittent, and a bit of banging on the key would usually fix it. With the caps lock key, though, I could see the little light on and off correctly, even though typing was still all in, in all caps. Just in case it was something stuck under the key, I used some compressed air on the key, but no joy was to be had. At the time this occurred, I was logged into a second user account. So I used fast user switching with Touch ID, which is glorious, by the way. You just kind of push on the Touch ID and the whole screen switches. It's really, really fun. Anyway, I used that to flip into my main account to test the keyboard there. 
Same caps lock problem happened in both accounts. Well, I wondered if this could possibly be a software problem. It seemed highly unlikely, but I had nothing to lose. After quitting all of my applications, I was just about to reboot when I realized if the reboot didn't fix the problem, I would not be able to log into my Mac because I wouldn't be able to properly capitalize the password. I thought, well, hey, I know, I'll just change my password before I log out. Well, of course, that won't work. You have to be able to type it in in order to change it. I started pondering looking up that hack where you can boot into recovery mode and change the password. But then Steve had a good idea. He wondered if I could use an external keyboard. Sure enough, the external keyboard, wired one, did not have the caps lock problem. That was a relief by itself because it meant if it was a hardware problem, I wouldn't have to go to the table of sadness and lose my MacBook Pro on show production day, especially after having done a nuke and pave. Well, with that working external keyboard, I took a deep breath and rebooted. And surprisingly enough, that fixed the problem. Is that a weird bug or what? Now, you would think that doing one nuke and pave in a week was enough for me. But an unfortunate miscalculation of timing on my part forced the second one on me. I bought the 12.9-inch iPad Pro the day it came out in November of 2015. At the time, the middle version was 128 gigabytes, and it was glorious when I got it. In June of 2017, before my two-year Apple Care was up, the iPad stopped recognizing the smart keyboard. I wrote up this lovely experience in a blog post entitled, Why I'm Getting a Fourth 12.9-Inch iPad Pro. Now, wait a minute, how did it get to be fourth? I won't go through all of the gory details because it's all in that blog post, but basically, the second one very quickly failed to recognize the keyboard. And yes, they were replacing the keyboards along with the iPads. Then I had a problem where the iPad Pro screen starts going started to go bananas with screen flicker and all kinds of weirdness. Not to be daunted by that, I got another one, and that one stopped responding to touch. That was around the time they gave me a dedicated seat at the table of sadness. The good thing that came out of all of that was that it had been nearly two years that I'd been fighting with all these different iPad Pros, and by that time they no longer had a 128-gigabyte model to give me as a replacement. As the models had matured and prices had gone down on SSDs, or on storage, I should say, the 256-gigabyte model was actually less than what I had paid for the 128-gigabyte original. The genius did the most delightful thing back then. My little friend Chris said he could take the iPad Pro as a return. That meant they'd give me back all of the money I'd paid, including the cost of Apple Care, and sell me a new 256-gigabyte model for $50 less than they'd refunded me. I got my brand new iPad Pro, and I made money. But the important part to the story is that it meant that my Apple Care was now extended out to June of 2019. And that's where we actually begin this story. Recently, I've had two major symptoms on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. The first, and actually most annoying, was that really often when I switched apps or went to the home screen, there would be a five-second delay before the screen would respond to touch. Didn't happen all the time, and of course I couldn't replicate it on the fly, but it was supremely annoying. It would seem to be one of two things. Either I needed to do a nuke and pave and not restore from a backup, or it was a hardware problem. Well, the second problem was that I was starting to get light leak across the bottom of the screen. It looked like this glow coming from the bottom along certain sections. Oddly, it was most noticeable on white screens rather than dark. Now, I'm no Apple designer, but I was pretty darn sure this symptom could not be a hardware pro- a software problem, I should say. 
Both symptoms had been around for a couple of months, but for some reason I can't explain, I chose the same week I planned to do a new compave on my Mac as the week I scheduled a visit to the Table of Sadness to get my iPad replaced. But the story takes a fun turn for the positive here. I walked into the Apple store a couple of minutes before my scheduled appointment. They won't register that you're even there until five minutes before the appointment time, so there's really no point in being earlier than that. As I walked in, immediately not one, but two of the lovely little clipboard people asked to help me. I chose the guy who called me Miss. I know it's vanity at my age, but I hate to be called ma'am. Makes me feel old. Anyway, he checked me in and he walked me back to the table of sadness. Before I could set my tushy down on the little stool, up walked my little friend Rory to help me. Seriously, I'm talking 45 seconds from when I walked in the door until I had a genius helping me. I explained the problem opened a white web page and said, light leak. And he said, yep. He then fiddled around in his device and chatted with someone else to see whether he'd be required to do a hardware test, even though the evidence was so very obvious. The answer came back that he was to simply give me a new 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Okay, it's probably not new, but probably refurbished, but, you know, like new. My only hope is by this time I'm not getting back one of mine after all these replacements. Anyway, I inspected my device to make sure it wasn't cracked or banged up, and he complimented me on what a good job I'd been done of taking care of it, and then he handed me a new iPad, and he even let me peel the plastic off myself. From the time I walked into the store until I had my new precious in my hot little hands, I would say it was about 12 minutes total. Rory and I were having such a good time that we ended up chatting even longer, and he begged me for my podcast business card. Possibly it was that I forced it on him. I'm really not sure about that detail. I do have to admit, it was the table of happiness that day. When I got home, I realized that it would be foolishness to restore this iPad from its backup because that delay I was having really could have been a software problem. It's time anyway. I had so many apps on that device, I couldn't find anything anyway. However, this did mean that I scheduled the paving of not one but two devices in the same week. Now, this iPad's not going to be nearly as much work, of course. Now, some of you may think that Apple just treats me nice because I'm loud on the podcast and social media, or maybe because I buy so much stuff, but I assure you that is not what's happening. Just last week, I went into the same Apple store to get a replacement silicon case because the one I bought less than a year ago had cracked and chunks were falling off of it. They told me, hey, there's a one-year warranty on the cases, but when they saw it, they said, we can't replace that under warranty. It's got physical damage. Well, Sorry, but what other kind of failure would a case have? A software problem? A sticky key? I argued with the guy and he wouldn't budge on it. And so I asked for the manager and she said the same thing. I was incredulous. I have to admit, I explained to her, I spent $4,600 with Apple in the last week. Yeah, I don't recommend buying two iPhones and three watches and Apple Care on all of them all in the same week. Well, she sighed and she said, well, just this once she would replace it under warranty. She was not my little friend. Anyway, the bottom line is that I got my iPad replaced with Art Argument and they did it really quickly and efficiently, making it the table of happiness instead of the table of sadness. In November of 2015, I did pay $949 for that iPad Pro, but the $99 worth of Apple Care has given me five iPads in three years and I still have nine months left on my Apple Care. Who knows? Maybe there's a sixth iPad left in my future. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. 
And I think I'm podfeet at mastodon.social. I don't know. I can't figure it out still. Anyway, remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. If you want to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast, which is just fun to say, you can go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to join the fun in our Facebook group, go to podfeet.com slash Facebook. If you want to hang out in Google+, Plus, like Steve uh, Davidson did, getting all kinds of great advice, building a Franken-mini and all that, head on over to podfeet.com slash Google+. If you want to join in our live chat room, you can find the chat at podfeet.com slash chat. If you want to use the Amazon affiliate links I talked about earlier, go to podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show where you get to see sausage made like nobody else can do it, we did it really good today. Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocella Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.